0: What's a million years to you? God said, it's the same thing as a second. That really impacted the little boy. He had a follow-up question. He said, what's a million dollars to you? He said, it's the same thing as a penny. And the little boy said, God, can I have one of your pennies? God said, sure, it's just a second. (laughs) I realized that when I get up here, uh, time speeds up for me and it slows down for you, and I, I preach with that awareness, and I just pray that we all finish at the same time. <laughs> the title of this lesson is uh, an old expression, goodness gracious, that is, is old and older than some of you, you're perhaps unfamiliar with it but I well recall that that was about the strongest language my grandmother ever used. When she was really perturbed, she might say, goodness gracious. Allow me, however, to use those two words this morning to ask an important question, and that is, is our goodness really gracious? You see, even goodness can be practiced in in a hard, harsh, cold, and legalistic way. We may turn in an excellent religious performance, but with a spirit that calls people to to view even our acts of goodness with less than admiration. As was said of a certain man, he was good in the worst sense of the word. In Romans chapter 12, in the latter part of verse 8, Paul, as he is enumerating the seven gifts or abilities that were at that time uh, present in the early church, he said, let him who practices mercy do so with, with cheerfulness. The implication, I think, in that passage is clear, and that is it's very possible for someone even to show mercy, and yet they do that in a way that is not gracious and is not good or kind. And so I'm saying this morning as really the premise of this lesson, wherever you are, whatever you do, you have a circle of influence that needs to be salted with with the spirit of goodness that is, is both gracious and kind. You'll find that principle on virtually every page of the New Testament. In Colossians 3.12, Paul said something very similar to the Colossian church that he said and that Joe just read a moment ago that he wrote to the Ephesian church. In chapter three, verse 12, he says, therefore, as the elect of God, so that means he's clearly talking to fellow Christians, he says, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, and longsuffering. These are hallmarks of the Christian life. These are things that people in the world should be able to look at us and see reflected in our lives and in our behavior, and that fellow Christians should be able to see as well. But I really want us to focus this morning on Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. It's a more familiar passage, and I think it's one that can make a tremendous impression not only on our minds but also on our lives. And be kind to one another, Paul writes, tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as God in Christ— has forgiven you. He not only has given us a divine precept, a principle, but he's also given us the yardstick by which, by which we should measure that, that even as God in Christ has forgiven you is the, the kind and gracious way that we should get, forgive and treat others. So with that in mind, I want us to look very quickly at an Old Testament example. And it's a fa- fascinating example to me, one of the most interesting stories in the Bible. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 38 in your Bible or on your tablet or whatever. Jeremiah chapter 38. I want to notice a few verses in that chapter this morning. Here, here's an interesting story about the prophet, the famous prophet Jeremiah, and about a, a, a little-known man by the name of Abed-Malek. Now, this is not Abimelech, that's another guy. This is Abedmelech. And the story provides, I think, a wonderful Old Testament example of what we mean by gracious goodness. If you look at the passage, you know that in the context that we don't really have time to fill completely in this morning, Israel was experiencing turbulent times. That's not surprising. They often did. It seems as if Israelite history was... A roller coaster ride, and one moment they would be at the peak, and the next moment they would be at the lowest point in their national and collective history. But Jeremiah was on this occasion arrested on the trumped-up charge of giving uh, comfort and, and aid to the enemy, and and it was because he had predicted Israel's capture by Babylon. Remember that a prophet did that; he spoke on behalf of God. He would foretell the word of God, not always foretell. And we need to appreciate that there were times when prophets did not predict the future. But on this occasion, Jeremiah was doing just that. So he was saying, Israel is going to be taken captive by Babylon. And, And his predictions of national defeat were so detailed and so realistic that they were deeply resented by his enemies. This guy has to have inside information was the conclusion. And so they had him whipped and thrown into an improvised jail. And the text actually tells us that the improvised jail was nothing more than a cistern, a well. And as you could imagine, it was extremely uncomfortable. Because Jeremiah 38, look at verse 6, actually tells us some specifics about where Jeremiah was having to spend his jail time. It says there was no water in the cistern, but only mire, and Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now, I've seen some unused wells before that have essentially dried up. And I know not only is it muddy, but usually that mud begins to ferment and it stinks. Some commentators suggest that Jeremiah was perhaps in up to his knees. Others say, perhaps to his waist, and some others even to his chest. But whatever it was, you could imagine his discomfort, how awful that existence was. I'd rather spend time in a jail cell. How about you? But Jeremiah is sunken in this mire. And Abed-Melech, who happens to be an Ethiopian slave, could not bear the thought of Jeremiah wasting away and dying in that Well. And so he begged the king to let him go and and to rescue the prophet. And the king granted his request, and even more than that, he assigned three men to aid in that rescue mission. And if you read down in verses 11 through 13, you find some of the particulars. I want to point out one thing about what uh, Abed-Melech, the slave, his suggestion, his idea about how we go about rescuing this man from the bottom of this well, this cistern. Notice the almost incidental indication of kindness, and that's why I'm using this as an expression and as an illustration of what it means to have goodness gracious or even gracious goodness. Abed-Melech knew that Jeremiah was already weakened by his beating and by his confinement and that he would suffer even further by those rough, bare ropes that were placed under his arms as he was hoisted up out of the well And so you'll notice in the text what he did. He took pains to cushion the ropes with soft cloths and rags. Again, you can read through that, and I think on first blush, it probably doesn't have a tremendous impact. But when you began thinking about what we're thinking about for a few minutes together this morning, and that is what it means to practice gracious goodness This is a beautiful Old Testament illustration of that principle and of that quality. It was an act of what Jesus would call in the New Testament second mile compassion. He didn't have to do that, but he did. He said, this man has suffered enough. Let's not make him suffer even more by hoisting out of the well and the ropes would hurt him in such a tremendous way. And that second mile compassion has been chronicled for us and for all time in the Old Testament record. Abed-Melech was good, but not only that, his goodness was gracious. You know, it isn't enough to just make a checklist of everything that Christ has commanded us to do and then systematically performing them one by one, somewhat like a, a Boy Scout who's working off the requirements in order to get his, his merit badges. It isn't enough to make a checklist like that in our, in our spiritual lives and to say I've done this, I've done this, I've done this and God should be pleased with my performance. Our goodness should have heart and compassion. It, it should have goodness with something extra, an extra measure of kindness. What we've come to know even this morning as, as gracious goodness. I want to suggest four reasons why God has commended in Ephesians 4, verse 32, and, and in many other places, why his people should be practitioners of this kind of goodness, this kind of gracious goodness. Why should our goodness be gracious? Well, first of all, because of the wholesome effect it will have on our own life, for one thing. A lady fell into the habit of being cross and critical and complaining with her family. I mean, she grumbled constantly. She was always bellyaching about one thing or the other, and nothing that her kids or her husband did ever pleased her, and she let them know about it. Well, one night, after being terribly irritable, she happened to overhear her child saying her bedtime prayer. And what she heard the little girl pray was this, Dear God, make mommy be kind to us like she is to the people that we visit. It was understandably a turning point in the life and the mentality of that woman. Her cactus-like personality was transformed into a beautiful life as she began to practice gracious goodness. R. Lee Sharp tells this story. He said, one spring day when I was just a child, father called me to go with him to the old man Trussell's blacksmith shop back in the early 20th century when they had such a thing. He, He had left a rake and a hoe there to be repaired, and they were ready. They were fixed like new. Father handed over a silver dollar for the job, but Mr. Trussell refused to take it. No, he said, there's no charge for that little job, but father insisted. And then he goes on to write, if I live a thousand years, I'll never forget that great blacksmith's reply. Sid, he said to my father, can't you let a man do something just to stretch his own soul? And I think that's really what this is all about we need to perform acts of gracious goodness from time to time if for no other reason than just to stretch our own souls and that's what it's all about Isaac Watts combined truth with poetry when he said kind words toward those you daily meet kind words and actions right will make this life of ours most sweet and turn darkness into light that's true why should our goodness be gracious here's a second reason because we can never successfully recommend the Christian life to others unless we ourselves are practicing gracious goodness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know that's the great love chapter. The Apostle Paul tells us that love is patient and kind. True love, whether it's marital love, love in the family, or love for anyone on the planet, needs to have those two qualities. That was Paul's inspired assessment of that situation. It needs to be patient, but it also needs to be kind. And if you began thinking about the semantics of that passage, you might ask this question, can love be any other way? Yes, it can. It can be practiced harshly. And yet Paul is writing this love chapter to help us to appreciate that there's a different dimension that we need to consider. Kindness is one of the identifying marks of Of Christian love and there's no real love without it and and without love Paul goes on to conclude in verse two of that chapter that that we're nothing so we need to take it seriously often the store clerk or even a waitress extends more kindness and more courtesy than a child of God does and so we need to make sure that it's as representatives and ambassadors of Jesus as we're walking in this world as we're interacting with people at the restaurant or in the store or in our business dealings, that we are practicing gracious goodness to everyone that we meet. Because my guarantee to you and God's assurance is that nothing will impress the world more than God's people being kind. And once we understand that lesson, I mean, at at our deepest level, I think that we can do wonders in making an impact on this community and the world in which we live, and even in our own families, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The lack of Christian kindness is no small thing. Many a person has turned away from from considering Christianity and disgust because of rude, inconsiderate treatment received from those who claim to be Christians, and that ought not to be characteristic of any of us. Alice Freeman Palmer, former president of Wellesley College, Once wrote that she had often worked with Christians who were, in her words, polite but cold. There was no intentional freezing, you see, just the absence of the sunshine of kindness that warms the heart. I don't want anyone to say that about us, do you? That these people are polite but they're cold. There's never a connection. People can't see the way we live and the way we treat people around us and say, that's a person who knows something about gracious goodness. In his best love story over in Luke chapter 15, Jesus told about a young boy who ran away from home. That's the essence of it. And you know this parable as well or better than I do. We call it the parable of the prodigal son. And he also described the older brother in that parable. It's almost as if we didn't get our money's worth without the older brother. And so the Lord wanted to make sure that we, He included every dimension in the spiritual dynamic. And He talked about the reaction of the older brother when the younger brother came home. And I, I believe that every Bible class that I've been a part of that has discussed the parable of the prodigal son, we all came to this tacit conclusion. I don't want to be the older brother. I don't want to be the younger brother either and turn my back on the security and the love of my father's house. I don't want to ever go to the far country, but I sure don't want to have the attitude and the cold, hard heart of the older brother. And you will be exactly right about that. He's described in that passage as being responsible and dependable and good He had never left his father's side. He had continued to work hard and he reminded his father of that, if you remember in that text, but he was also a heartless young man. He wouldn't even go into the party. By the way, let me add this. It's not a part of my notes, but I want to throw this in. If you refused to reflect tender compassion and mercy in your life toward others, you'll be the one that misses the party you'll miss what's most important in life. You will not enjoy life because the way we treat people is usually the way other people will treat us. And here we see this older brother who was not enjoying life. And while he should have been celebrating with his father at the return of his brother, all he could do was talk about how poorly he had been treated and how that the father had never thrown a party for him, and all the rest, and so he goes through the rest of that passage, just belly aching about one thing or the other you 'll miss the party if you don 't learn how to practice gracious goodness in a sense, he was as sinful as his rebellious brother, but why it was because his goodness was unkind, it was unloving, and it certainly was ungracious here 's a true story that I think, illustrates the, the powerful influence of what we're calling gracious goodness. Disaster came into Karen's life. Her father died. Her mother was critically ill. And as a direct result, the support of the entire family fell on her young shoulders. And so Karen took an accelerated business course to learn typing and shorthand. That's what you did. In the latter 1950s and early 1960s, that's exactly what she, she wanted, took a business course. And so she went to work on her first job. She walked into a large room filled with desks and typewriters and almost exclusively young women who were working and training as secretaries. And they were all neatly and fashionably dressed. And that was a noticeable contrast to her plain old clothing. And she spent all of her money for the business course and so she had no funds to buy new clothes for her first job. Well, she was embarrassed. And, and she kind of slipped down as low as she could in her chair, hoping that the desk would hide her plainness. And when lunchtime came, she stayed at her desk, not wanting to be seen. At quitting time, she waited for the office to evacuate for everyone to leave before she made her exit. The next morning, Anne, one of the other secretaries, approached Karen. And Anne too, was dressed rather plainly. And Anne said, I didn't see you until yesterday. Are you new here? And Karen said, yes, I am. And she said with a smile on her face, will you come have lunch with me? And Karen said, I'd love to. Well, the two ate lunch together that day and every day for the rest of the week. When Friday came, Anne came over smiling and said, this is payday, let's go buy some new clothes. And so they did. One morning, a few weeks later, Ann was waiting for Karen when she arrived for work. Do you have some of your old clothes still? She wanted to know. And when Karen nodded that she did, she said, well, please wear them tomorrow and I'll wear some of mine. And she explained, she said, don't look now, but across the room, there's a new girl who's very embarrassed because her clothes are not as as stylish as everybody else's. Well, the next day, Attired in their old dresses, the two women approached the new girl's desk. They introduced themselves, invited her to have lunch with them. The rest of the week, they all three ate lunch together every day. And one day, Karen said, Ann, you're a Christian, are you? And Ann smiled and indicated that she was. And Karen said, I want to be a Christian like you. Will you please show me how? My main message to you this morning, church, is simply this. When gracious goodness becomes a way of life for God's people, and I don't mean God's people out there. I mean for every one of us. We will have constant opportunities to recommend our faith and to share the good news of the gospel with others. When they see gracious goodness in our lives, Here's another reason for practicing gracious goodness, because everyone out there is having a hard time. I believe we can all say amen to that. Why should our our goodness be gracious? This is another powerful reason that was suggested by John Watson. And he said, let us be kind to one another. For most of us are fighting a hard battle. Well, amen to that. Billy Sunday was a well-known evangelist in the early part of the 20th century, and according to the story that I read, he wrote to the mayor of a city one time where he was scheduled to preach over the weekend, and he requested a list of people desperately in need of prayer, and the mayor obligingly sent him an unabridged copy of the city phone directory. That's exactly right. Every, burp, every name there desperately needed someone's prayers. And it's certainly true in our lives. We all stand in the need of prayer and acts of gracious goodness every single day. You know, practically everyone is fighting a hard battle. There's, there's a battle on every pew. I understand that, and you do as well. And we may not recognize it in others. It may not be something that's very obvious, but I'll guarantee you that that is absolutely true. They have problems too. And it may, may seem like their lives are immune from those problems of life, but, but they aren't. Everybody has got a particular and a unique set of difficulties. You can mark that down, not only from inspiration, but also from, from human experience. Suppose you did this. Suppose you opened your telephone book. Well, you kids would have to ask your parents what a telephone book is first. But if you still had one of those things and you opened it, or, or even your church directory, and at random you picked out 25 names, just, just at random, And suppose you sent each one of those people that you had picked out the same short letter, just a note in a card that says something along the lines of just to let you know that I'm thinking about you and your difficult situation. How do you think those 25 people would react? I dare say that in most cases, the recipients of those notes would be able to figure out some cause for the expression of your consolation. How did he know what was going on in my life, they would ask. And, and some would even acknowledge with gratitude your kindness by sending that note to encourage them. What kind of hard battles are we talking about here? We're talking about the battles, the difficulties. In this, in this world, you will have tribulation or trouble. Jesus assured his disciples in John sixteen thirty three. But you know, the rest of the verse says, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The battle's already been won. But right now, we're in a skirmish, aren't we? With the world, with our own sinful desires, with the difficulties that come to us all. We're talking about the harsh, hard-hitting kind that that comes with, with the death of a loved one. And the many funerals that we've been attending here lately, or, or with the terrifying announcement that, I'm sorry to tell you this, the doctor says in the hospital corridor that the tests are positive, you in fact do have cancer. Or, or, or the pit of the stomach loneliness like Anthony had on the very first day of school, you may remember how you felt on day one. Of your first school experience, that, that pit of the stomach loneliness that he was experiencing, and he looked so despondent that the teacher looked at him with some sympathy and said, "Anthony, what's the problem? Are you homesick?" And he said, "Oh no, i'm not homesick i'm here sick." <laughs> and, and you may know that feeling. The problem isn't somewhere else it's right here, and the battles are many it's loneliness and, and fear and worry and death, and depression, and feelings of inadequacy, and inferiority, and and all those things that we have to fight with every day of our lives. The difficult decisions that have to be made, the decisions that, that we understand at some level have far-reaching consequences. Battles between belief and unbelief, conflicts between truth and falsehood, skirmishes between sin and righteousness, And and God talks about that on every page of his book. The battles that parents must fight as they seek to win the hearts and the minds of their children for Jesus, those are no small things. And if we have any spiritual conscientiousness and sensitivity about us at all, we will recognize those battles for what they are, that Satan and God are fighting a life and death battle over our eternal souls and the souls of our children. And it's because of that, and not necessarily in spite of it, that we may have some difficulty sleeping at night. And our prayers have taken on a greater degree of fervency because we realize now in spiritual maturation what is at, in fact at stake. You look at any direction and the men and women you see are fighting hard, lonely battles. They're weighted down with the burdens that that you can lighten through the exercise of some gracious goodness. Francis of Assisi wrote the following words, they may ring familiar to you. I shall pass this way but once, he wrote, any good that I can do or any kindness that I can show to any human being, let me do it now, let me not defer it or neglect it for I shall pass this way but once. That's my message to you this morning. God's people of all people need to be people who practice gracious goodness that demonstrate tender mercies in our lives. And the basic reason for the practice of gracious goodness is encapsulated in the words that have already been read. I want to go back one more time. We began with this, we'll end with this. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has already forgiven you. We ought to be try, try to be kind in our dealings with others as much so as God has been in his dealings with us. That's Paul's message in that brief but powerful passage. We've been treated magnificently by God. Can I say that again? We have been treated magnificently by our God. And Paul's argument then is, if that's true, and it is, man, what an impact it should have on the way we treat other people. Be as tender-hearted and merciful and compassionate in your dealings with others as a loving, forgiving, grace-filled God has been in his dealings with us. I I just don't believe we can help but be kinder to others and a little blinder to their faults when we contemplate God's goodness toward each one of us. And I'll remind you as Paul did in Romans 5 and verse 8, but God has demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I want you to know as we sing the song of invitation that Christ died for you and for me when we were still sinners, when we were still on the wrong side when we are still fighting the wrong battle, Jesus said those people are worth dying for. And he wants you this morning to become his follower and his child. If only you'll turn your back on sin and repentance, confess his sweet name as the son of God, be immersed in water, baptized where you will contact his saving, redeeming blood, and you can leave this place as a brand new creature in Christ Jesus while we stand and while we sing. Amen.